Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. You may know Michaela Magus as the founder of Music Tech Fest. She's also the chair of the Industry Commons Foundation and an advisor to the European Commission. Well, she's going to be running our Industry Commons ecosystem ICE Labs in Mannheim in April, and that's going to not only result in innovation and in sound design for new urban environments, but also case studies and white papers to go back into local, regional, national and European policy. So I thought it might be a good idea to have a chat and find out how she manages to feed what we do into European policy. From our MTF studio in Normula, this is Michaela Magus. When it comes to my work with the Commission, it has always been a balancing act between bringing our community to the next stage of evolution Mm -hmm. in terms of R&D, in terms of ideas, in terms of corporations, in terms of the cocktail of minds that are in the room. Taking them to the next challenge, at the same time feeding the results and feeding what we have found through implementing certain measures, so for instance facilitating the way that they cooperate, tracking their intellectual property, giving them toolkits to work with, etc. Any of the successes were always fed into policies. So as you know, I coordinated all of the innovation recommendations for the Connect Advisory Forum, the Horizon Programme. And about, I would estimate about 70% had come directly from the grassroots. And I'm in such a position of privilege to be able to do that. Well, that's not, I mean, it's important to say that's not usual. Most people who are getting policy implemented at that level yeah. are doing are so, they're lobbyists for large industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah correct. And so, so what you're doing is taking from this kind of community of mm. you know, innovators and inventors and creatives mm. and observing things that seem to work and then feeding that into European policy. Let's just say that um, I've, I've used a maker and hacker mentality to live prototype the ideas that are usually discussed at European level yeah. and vice versa. You know, it, it kind of, it's a two-way thing because I also get inspired by some of my colleagues in the European Commission. That they do let me talk a lot, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, they're very sort of generous with that and they seem to uh, be interested. Well, they take um, notes. <laughs> no, but uh, but uh, I do also have some very inspiring, very intelligent colleagues. Uh, so there is a wonderful dialogue that happens directly from the live prototyping, making, creating environment where we translate thoughts into practice. And not just for the sake of it being intellectual exercise, but for the sake of really testing the effect on people. Yeah. And then... Uh, feeding that effect back into policy. And basically, because industry, I was on the industry advisory right from the beginning, so from 2013-14, and some of the ideas that I had been actually reading just recently because of the recent uh, developments, uh, I've been referring back to them. They are uncanny. <laughs> I should publish them because... Um, it's incredible how much has been implemented. Well, there's things that you wrote in 2014 that are now coming out as That's right. As, yeah, but they're not you know, even now coming calls. out. Yes, yeah. they're, they're coming out in two, uh, 2022. Mm. Uh, but, but basically, yeah, uh, I, I seem to have spent most of my life um, prototyping things that would come out 
around 10 years later. <laughs> it really is um, quite interesting. Well, here's a, an important point, I think, is it's, it's worth underlining. You don't get paid to go and consult the Absolutely European Commission. Not. In fact, they don't allow that. For, in fact, for just some... recently, they actually made me pay for my own flight to go in and advise to the future and emerging technologies. And I actually really, really liked what I suggested to them. And so pres- presumably this is now going to get implemented and I paid for it. So from an independent observer's perspective, there's the kind of what's in it for you question. But I guess the payoff is what's happened in policy. Oh, but it's fabulous. I mean, listen to this, right? I mean, what I said to... F- Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's just... What I said to uh, FET was... Um, FET being... Future Emerging Technologies Group. Yeah. They are getting some fantastic results. They've been getting fantastic results for years. I mean, some of the things that... that uh, the, some of the real kind of blue sky thinking projects, they only find their application 10 years later. Yeah. I mean, they may be investigating certain phenomena in biological systems and then uh, reproducing them in synthetic systems. They don't know what they're going to apply them to yet. Mm-hmm. And yet it's clear that they are fascinating. And of course, the kind of minds that get involved in these projects are totally just curious and fascinated by the possibilities of what one can do. And so they will create those results. And yet nobody can think of an application. Now, not least for the fact that our community could probably think of a few, but also for the fact that these project results are then buried in reporting. And how is one to think of an idea 10 years later if you don't know that this exists sure. as a result? So basically, what I suggested to them is that I said, we deploy it. If you basically construct a system that we have been testing, which is what you want to do is register it in a chain with a timestamp, hash it. With metadata, you know, some of our learnings come from the music business. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's just construct it in the same way that we do with the music file. Here's a piece of creation that's been created by a group of people that each had their contribution. Yeah. Each of them have to be credited. There is some metadata that will give you the kind of broad description of what this, this might be. Yeah. And then you can dig in deeper and you can refer to it. You can also start to follow and track according to the timeline of registrations, how the IP evolved, who was inspired by whom, who then worked on the next project. Is there a fantastic IP yield? I mean, we're talking about things that are not patentable at that stage for Mm. most part. No, very, very early blue sky development stuff. 10 years later, I'm just accessing this database because I am an industry player who wants to now construct whatever it is. I'm doing materials research, let's say, for my production line. because This I is a hypothetical. A hypothetical, yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And let's say I'm doing this thing that would need a kind of tensile strength that, that I don't know, like a spider web might have. Yeah. Um, but it needs to be applied in a particular kind of scenario, etc., etc. So I am diving in to this thing and suddenly, according to my keywords, some fabulous research from 10 years ago pops up that might just add to the cocktail of IPs which I have just identified as a combo that might just solve my problem. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah, that would be amazing. I mean, basically, if you add to this the potential of materials modeling through systems that are dynamic, yeah. where 
you know, you can feed your case study, which nobody could have thought of in advance. Sure, the use case for that technology, as yeah, long as it's just combined emerged, with it. I mean, right? it's, the, it's the hybridity yeah. thing that's that's the important bit. It's the yeah. fact that this kind of spiderwebby new material that was invented 10 years ago yep. didn't have this use case application because nobody had thought, A, you could use it for this, B, you should connect it to these other technologies. Precisely. And that's where what you do... And has the price point for these kinds of things now potentially decreased? Because, I mean, obviously, what you want to do with that kind of a system is... Uh, you want to index link it. You can do uh, all kinds of ways in which you um, release your IP. Mm -hmm. um, and it could be uh, based on the sort of attribution model that we developed with open product licenses, for instance, which was mimicking Creative Commons, but in 3D space. Sure. So basically, you can actually set some rules when you originally deploy it. Mm -hmm. But you can also uh, reassess those uh, because markets change, uh, conditions change. And uh, say so you can also decide to index link it so that it actually moves with the market. Um, of course, my ambition is to uh, construct a system providing, and I will do the caveat with big letters, that we can solve the environmental impact of decentralized technologies, yeah. that we uh, introduce, of course, into this whole model, micropayments and nanotaxation. So we don't have to worry about books at the end of the year. Uh, everything is just automatically deducted. Mm -hmm. um, and that basically you can introduce all kinds of algorithms for multipliers and uh, special deals and all those kinds of things into those kinds of systems. So um, including contractual obligations, including the kinds of relationship parameters that you want to establish. First, again, treat legal, same as you do with metadata. You have a one-page contract that stipulates your main obligations. You don't go into enormous 50-page contracts from the outset. You have a basic entry point. Mm. Then uh, you actually, very often when you have 50-page contracts, you have no clue in reality. You've kind of tried to think of all of the different potential um, issues up front and then you've inevitably missed on some because the whole landscape is evolving. So instead you do a dynamic system whereby your um, contracts get updated depending on the case studies, et cetera, et cetera. The entire system is dynamic. So this is, for instance, where the industry commons is absolutely essential. We have started already the work on semantic interoperability. Unpack that, semantic interoperability. It's about people from different sectors speaking the same language, essentially. Yes, except that, as you well know, and then the same with culture, if you tried to do such a thing, you would very soon discover how difficult that you is. You get Esperanto. Yes, and Esperanto is not based in culture, therefore nobody wants to use it. Exactly. So yeah. what you want to do is you want to create a system that translates and connects and bridges in intelligent ways mm -hmm. um, rather than making people change their culture. When I say knowledge graphs, for instance, someone thinks of a product as one type of thing and someone else will say a product is another type of thing. I mean, that is related to their sector. So as a global term, a product means completely different things to different oh, people. The word product. The word product. Right. So we're talking semantics, right? So we're talking about signifiers. So, so concepts that come from different cultures and each domain of industry has its own culture. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain touch points. There are certain sort of global notions. Um, but of course, in order to be operational, you need to be uh, operating at more 
granular level. And at a granular level, you have your own system and you're not going to redo all your systems. So what you need to do is a system of bridging. And a system of bridging that's efficient, effective, something that will actually really help you with being able to work together, uh, join forces and have less waste in sort of operations. So then don't duplicate, reduce duplication, reduce any of the areas where you don't have to have multiple steps, but you can sort of literally leap across. I mean, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to be very, very effective with these things. So start with semantics. Uh, we need to do upgrade the contractual uh, situation for, for um, collaborative work. Mm -hmm. So this is very much what I've been just talking about, about intellectual property. So the intellectual property systems need to be ones that incentivize both the big players to release their data into the common pool and, and their capabilities and their tools mm -hmm. under various different controlled contractual parameters. Yep. So they need to be able to track and trace how their IP is used. So fully control it. You can they can release data that's fungible, so that it can be tested in environments, and then they you don't they don't have to reveal everything. They can be fully in control of their assets. Fungible. Fungible means that uh, basically there are data sets that you could use for the exact same scenario that are not actually for that scenario. So basically, it's like a dummy set. Uh -huh. It may not be, a, you know, it may not be entirely a, a fake set. It could be a real set that's been generated, but in a different domain or in a different in a different place. But it can be used for the same test. This is where uh, industry commons also comes into mm -hmm. it because what you can do is identify. Put it this way: you have seen examples where the data from music, because mu data from music is widely available, it's highly complex. It comes with all of these different challenges that are really well known. And then when we use it in test environments, we can actually use it in test environments that are to do with something completely different, like finance. Sure. But if you used finance data, well, you couldn't access it because GDPR, and then you couldn't, uh, then it would be, if you if you did access it, it would be without certain elements because of GDPR. Or sure, people's financial and, data, people's medical data. And then it data, would be expensive, you know, yeah, or rather exactly. it would be a problem for the bank to, to kind of be releasing things like that. And it would be all kinds of legal issues and whatever. Instead, we just take music data, which has very similar characteristics. Uh -huh. um, it also has kind of proportion, uh, you know, maybe particular variables on there that are comparable right. to the case study that we are examining in the other domain. And therefore, uh, it is entirely replaceable. Is this why the creative sector is so important in the midst of this, or is this just one kind of element of, of what makes uh, uh, music industries, creative industries more broadly sort of central to this? Because it's become central to this, and I really want to talk about that's kind of been the payoff of you going to Brussels and working with the European Commission, is that now the creative industries are a central pillar to all of the ways that these industries are, are thought about. Is that a large part of it? It's because nobody dies if you mess up their metadata on an MP3. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I don't think that um, uh, the creative industries have become this important just because their data is easy to use. Um, I think that um, the, the creative industries have uh, really grown in importance because essentially what we're facing at the moment are so many unknown unknowns um, that creative practitioners are the ones who are trained to investigate unknown scenarios and they have methodologies to tackle 
these um, new surprising scenarios. Let's face it, every single time that we run our labs that involve AI neural nets and any kind of um, system that's complex, uh, where uh, the human being is interacting in an entirely new way. Blockchain, get, neuroscience, uh, yeah, robotics. This combination you know. of sort of new sort of things. Because the prototypes that we now build, they their effects are so fast, the results come up so fast, the amount of different surprises that come out of these new scenarios, they really are overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And no linear problem-solving system, no prior training can prepare you for those unless you are a creative practitioner who has been by default trained to do problem-solving by looking at things from completely different perspectives and is used to surprising scenarios or surprising insights. Mm -hmm. So it's about brain training, really, very much. I mean, creative practitioners very often underestimate themselves as to what their training has given them or enabled them to do. Many will tell you that they do observe phenomena 24-7 because they are trained to do so. And they are sort of conscious to that level of what they're capable of. What was traditionally underestimated was the comparison between the rigor of a scientist and the rigor of a creative practitioner. There is rigor, for sure. The difference has been that the, this, there, is, there was this kind of real method that was a perceived method from the scientific community mm-hmm. of um, deduction and induction by, by your right to a conclusion. And it seemed so clear to people that they seemed highly rational as a method. And with the creative practitioners, their brain training that was far less linear and it was really aiming to look at subject matter from as many perspectives as possible. From the point of view of their training, it was perceived as a chaotic method. Mm -hmm. It was opening up to many possibilities and therefore it felt as though it was irrational and perhaps too reliant upon some kind of instinct. This is the STEAM problem that has kind of come about with people trying to say, oh, we need arts to be embedded within the science and technology and engineering mathematics. So we'll do this project and it's about scientific things, but we'll stick an artist in there and they can do a dance about it or they can make a painting <laughs> about it. or you know, and, and it's just sort of tacking on this kind of interpretation thing. What you sound like you're talking about is something that's much more problem solving and uh, it's rigorous. Up and new knowledge. Exactly. Opening so. up new perspectives and new vistas on subject matter opens up new knowledge. The only thing you need to know how to do is communicate it. And in our prototyping environments, this is very clear because things are tangible, things are made, and things happen. If an artist says, well, let's try it like this, it instantly gives you feedback and it illuminates the subject matter. And that's not to say that then a scientist will not come around and say, well, let's do it like this. But the important part is putting them together. Yeah, exactly. And also, it's a complete myth 
that scientists have got this kind of plain old linear way of, of, of doing things. The system of peer reviews encouraging this, it's a little bit... The sort of incremental building of knowledge, if you like. Yes, which actually turns into this kind of self-reinforcing mechanism for professors to be acknowledged. You know, because basically, oh, you know, it's very likely that some of our peers will be reviewing me I better mention them in my paper that sort of thing yeah. you know and and it is a bit a little bit self yeah. only 12 people will ever read this article but they're 12 important people that that too but I mean that's not to say that the knowledge that's in them is is insignificant of course there's tremendous and significant work going on in science it's just that I'm talking about the mechanism yeah. of of the reward mechanism the incentive mechanism I think we can create completely new incentivizing mechanisms now that we are for instance constructing the open um, science cloud in Europe and where suddenly science becomes accessible to the broader population. You can have citizen scientists contributing data sets, for instance, to research and we should create reward mechanisms. I've already told them incentivize this in the right kind of way um, so that where previously, for instance, the citizen scientists, no matter how brilliant or accomplished they were, if they weren't part of the system of peer-reviewed papers, they just simply could not get a single reward for any contribution they might do towards uh, scientific research. So in that sense, you have a possibility now to also update the system in science, specifically in the context of open science. Is Europe getting better at funding and encouraging these things as the new, because Horizon 2020 we've sort of come to the end of, there's the next batch of things, there's a whole new group of people, it's all divided in new ways, and the funding calls seem to be at least pushing in this direction, would that be fair? Intellectually, you have some very intelligent people in charge, and I do hope that people have realised that more recently with recent sort of political events and how um, they have been reacted to and how well they've been dealt with. So hopefully we have also witnessed some intelligent actions. I have been witnessing intelligence. This is, I mean, you know, I wouldn't be part of these advisory groups if I wasn't interacting with incredibly inspiring intelligent people around me. I mean, there really are some incredible people there. Intellectually, it's phenomenal. There is an administrative part that still runs on a steam engine. And there is a difficulty, of course, of doing moonshots with a steam engine. Unless we address some of these systems at the core, at the operational level, we will not reach the sort of goals that we wish to reach and we constantly fall over Mm -hmm. because of those. Now, there is quite a good possibility that the agile systems that are coming in that are already been tested and developed can take over so quickly in administration that the bottom will fall out of the old-fashioned bureaucracy and it will be very painful if that happens in that order. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to advocate for is for system design at the core of all of the operations where we start to build on the same railway tracks, and I have a good ideas to where that might be, or who might be running them at the moment, and we build the value added on top for all of the different operations that we need to solve or that we need to upgrade. Mm-hmm. And this includes also the uh, financial administration of European projects, which I think is well overdue for revamp. 
it's incredibly painful and difficult both uh, to innovate in and to deal with in the current landscape. Because the landscape has progressed, it has moved on tremendously, uh, actually, and surprisingly for me. For instance, the uh, introduction of the creative industries um, in the core program, I did not expect to happen as quickly as it has done. And it is much down to, there's a group of people. Actually, the group of people is, when I say a whole group of people, it's a handful of people really when you look at it. Um, but let's just say that certain regions in Germany have invested heavily and I mean really put their money where their mouth is in terms of securing this. And years ago, if you had asked me, I would have expected Britain to be at the forefront of placing the creative industries at the centre of Europe. It has been completely the opposite. There's been, uh, for instance, uh, you know, we're working with Mannheim. I opened for Mannheim the cooperation after the... Well, the Franco-German alliance, That's Franco-German alliance yeah. in the creative industries, which was the first alliance after the Merkel-Macron agreement. And there are parts of Europe who have really invested in um, employing teams to work on raising awareness in this domain. And for instance, uh, the MEP, Member of European Parliament, Christian Ehrler, who managed to get the Commission, Parliament and the Member States to agree to putting the CCI, the cultural creative industries, at the top of the agenda of industry. And now Maria Gabriel in her speech in January saying the CCI are her top priority. Fantastic. And uh, so even if the administration isn't quite firing all, on all this cylinders. This I'm saying intellectually and conceptually, people who are working at high level in the European Commission, they really understand a great deal of what is needed. They appreciate these values. Um, years and years ago, I was asked, why do you know, you're a designer, you're ex-Royal College of Art, why are you doing politics? Well, I said over and over again the same answer as I do now. For as long as I see the outcomes, it's worth it. The outcomes impact our community, the Music Tech Fest community, the broader community, the um, industry interoperability and standardization and collaboration community, yeah. um, and society the social impacts that you create by enabling these new channels, by enabling more participation in the economy, more participation in society and culture, etc., more meaningful participation, more rewarded, more incentivized. For as long as I see the things that are coming out, the things that I have perhaps suggested, and I see them come out. That's your payoff. It is, yeah. yes. And what does that mean for the MTF community more broadly? Much greater respect for their knowledge and their contribution, bearing in mind that the Music Tech Fest community includes also uh, policy makers, project officers from the European Commission, it just so happens, um, and then a tremendous sort of researchers and industry. Uh, but let's just say um, for the PhDs, postgrads, entrepreneurs and innovators who are really kind of at the cutting edge and operating close to emerging markets, they're not just playing. They're people who have really valuable knowledge. They're really intelligent and they know how to apply it. 
the important thing then is that if there is a um, um, funding uh, mechanism or a system in place that can engage those communities in a meaningful way together with all of these incredible industry capabilities that we do have, we can join the dots between the results from research through technology transfer, the products from industry that can be deployed through either data or capabilities in a controlled way. Let these people who are incredibly good at then joining the dots with a new perspective, with knowledge of emerging markets, and let them run with it. If they run with it, they have ownership over their idea that's built on top of these things. They run off with it and the industry doesn't have to invest into market research or in any of this, and they wouldn't even know where to start with some of these emerging markets. So they don't need to go there. They can see if it works because their assets are now being deployed somewhere and tested with early adopters. And the early adopters figures, so figures from early adoption, so assessment of the risk and early adoption and sort of seeing what the results are will give them a very good insight whether it is worth investing mm -hmm. or if not, if their capabilities are embedded in, in some new products and this, let's say, a team just runs off with it. Well, if there is a, if there is a market that opens up for that product, they're already embedded in it. Yep. So, I mean, that's another source of income. That's their incentive. Yeah. So, I mean, the incentives are multiple. Mm -hmm. you know? There's just so many ways in which this game can play out. It also, so many ways in which it can play out for the entrepreneur, because the entrepreneur, as we have seen before, can be approached by a giant manufacturer and say, "We w we want this," mm. and they can go back and negotiate with the original core uh, component providers and say, "Well, now I need a good deal from you because I've got a a, a big buyer." Well, interestingly, the people who are now coming to you and to us and saying, you know. What does this mean? What should we do? It's industry. It's cities. It's uh, academia. It's you know. It's, it's right fabulous. It's fabulous uh, uh, working with the cities. The cities are interesting because they are all ecosystems that are smaller and therefore more agile, and can uh, be strategically placed to service um, wider ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So the cities that have been particularly interested in working with us um, have been typically sort of 100,000 to maybe 300,000 people mm -hmm. in, in that sort of spectrum or can work very well on improving quality because that's the thing. thing, it's not just uh, how do we improve our end of year bottom line, it's how do we make this a better place to live. Um, you know, Long-term vision for exactly. the region. And these, that's yeah. the really interesting thing. Some of these cities, they're talking about 10-year plans. Not, yeah. It's not just, you know, what does our quarterly report look like? I mean, let's face it, most of them, well, actually all of them are now very, very well uh, enabled in terms of infrastructure. So there is nothing to stop them being incredibly competitive at a global level. Mm. Um, you know, it, it took some parts of Europe to get there because they were on far too low bandwidth before and now they're on 
kind of all of the cities that we're talking to are jumping onto 5G, not mm-hmm. quite knowing exactly how they're going to use it, but this, you know, this is where they need. Well, I'm going to come back to you on cities in another conversation because we're definitely oh, okay, going right, to do this again. <laughs> um, what I want to sort of end on, I guess, is, you know, what's the big takeaway for um, somebody who is, who's maybe been to an MTF before, has seen an MTF showcase stage or has seen uh, something that's happening in the lab or, um, you know, the Sparks or the, the Hackathon or any of the things that we've done how do you connect the dots for somebody like that between what they've seen on the ground at an MTF what they've experienced there and what's happening in European policy and how those things work together well uh, they can come and be part of an even greater impact I mean they have seen the sort of impact it has on broader communities with engagement in MTF before and our feedback from people the voluntary feedback for people is just just phenomenal and it's it speaks for itself but um, come and be at the center of an even greater impact. We are now at the position of being able to engage with uh, some really uh, big industry partners and big future directions. And our community is really well placed to contribute to this. So from where I'm standing, there's just even bigger potential to make a mark, to invent like we say, you know, we don't predict the future, we invented to invent the future together with some incredible partners. Michaela, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks. That's Michaela Magus. That's the MTF Podcast, and I'm Andrew Dubber. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Dubber, and MTF is at Music Tech Fest, all one word. You can find Michaela on Twitter and frequently LinkedIn. The MTF Podcast is out every Friday, so if you haven't already, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast app might happen to be. And if you like what you hear, you can share, rate, and review us. It really helps other people find us who might be into the sort of thing as well. And that way we keep on growing this amazing community. So that's it for now. Have a great week and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Mm-hmm.